CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. We come to another Friday on Political Rewind. It's pretty astonishing to me how fast the time goes by uh, when you're sheltering in place, which we've been doing on this show for many, many uh, weeks now. Uh, it's also the end today of what I think people would agree is one of the most unusual sessions of the Georgia legislature we've ever seen. Uh, it'll be noteworthy, I think, for a couple of things. We'll talk about them in a minute. One of them is uh, it was a virus-interrupted session. They had to shut down the session the second week of March and uh, couldn't resume until mid-June and then had 11 days to rush through, particularly uh, the state budget. We'll talk about where that stands as of right now. But it will probably also be remembered uh, for making history. It was this session of the legislature which once and for all passed a hate crimes bill that is now sitting on Governor Kemp's desk, and it uh, takes Georgia out of that sorry figure of previously four states in the country who didn't have some form of hate crimes laws, and now uh, there are only three left. So we're going to talk about all that and more. We'll talk about the police reform bill that passed in the U.S. House last night. Um, And we're going to talk a little bit about COVID-19 as well, particularly uh, a move on the part of the Savannah mayor, Van Johnson, to uh, mandate masks in his city. We got a great panel to talk about all that. Stephen Fowler, political reporter for GPB Radio, is uh, with us. And you, Stephen, have been covering the Capitol uh, during this extremely unusual time. You're finally at the end of the road, Stephen. I can see the light at the end of the coronavirus tunnel. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm old enough that when I hear sine die, which of course is the uh, expression used to end the session, uh, I still hear it in the uh, in the mouth of the former Speaker Thomas B. Murphy in his West Georgia accent, who would bang the gavel and say sine die. Uh, David Ralston's a little bit more refined than that, Stephen. Right. <laughs> We're also joined by Adam Van Brimmer. He's the editorial page editor of Savannah Morning News. Uh, We're glad to have you back with us, Adam. Thanks for joining us. Always would be with you, Bill. Good morning. And Tia Mitchell, the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, comes to us from Washington. Tia, you had big news yesterday. The House vote on the police reform measure uh, was a significant step that unfortunately, we'll get to it in broader terms a little later, may not go very far beyond being a powerful statement by the U.S. House of Representatives. Right, yeah. I think the Democrats are not only trying to send a statement, but thus far they've been reluctant to negotiate because they believe that Republicans are trying to, you know, water down the bill so that it ultimately doesn't do much to address these concerns that have been raised across the nation. All right, we'll get into some of the details of all that in a little while. But, but Stephen, let me start with the, the uh, state budget. House and Senate leaders have now agreed on all of the details of the budget. And, and I think I'm, it's fair to say, Stephen, that um, after all of the kind of apocalyptic visions of the 14% budget cuts that would decimate agencies across the state uh, uh, create serious problems for Georgians seeking important services. Um, in fact, this budget turned out to be a lot better in many ways than many people expected. Many services were saved, weren't they? Right. And, you know, it, it's a strange time to live in to say that a 10% budget cut is actually not that bad. But a couple months ago, the governor asked state agencies to submit plans to reduce things by 14 percent. But because the revenues weren't as bad as projected and uh, now because of an adjustment to the revenue estimate, you know, things are looking better, especially for many state employees. Uh, Many agencies were proposing furloughs of state employees ranging from one day a month to up to 24 days a year, which is nearly 10 percent of the working year. And because of the addition of money from the state's rainy day fund 
and some other shifting things around. Most state employees will not have to have furloughs this next fiscal year. That means epidemiologists working to fight coronavirus won't have to take an unpaid day. State troopers working to keep roads safe won't have to take a day. And so it's a huge thing for state employees that the appropriations committees were able to navigate this and put that in the budget. Um, Adam, it's a $26 billion budget and the legislature given given again because of their delay but over because of the coronavirus they're taking it right up to the wire the new fiscal year starts in the middle of next week and getting this thing finished up today was pretty crucial adam yeah you look at earlier in the week where it went into conference committee and there was a lot of talk about this this related legislation whether it was tobacco tax now i guess it's a vaping tax and and stripping tax breaks and trying to basically plug a bunch of uh, leaky holes in the dike to try to. It's pretty amazing that they did get it together in the end. Uh, but then again, we haven't seen a vote on the floor of, of either chamber yet. So we'll see what happens later in the day. You know, I, I, I will make one point about uh, uh, this. I think that's important. Um, and that is that uh, typically, Stephen. The budget isn't really agreed upon. It is almost always a late-night, last-minute agreement to get it done because so many items in the budget can be held hostage uh, for other legislation that legislators want to get through. It's interesting that because of the race that they've been under uh, to get this done, this agreement was made a little bit earlier. I mean, Adam's right. You never know what's going to happen in the last hours, but— A budget that's agreed upon a day ahead of time is a little unusual, and it tells us something about how it is often used as as a means for pressuring uh, legislators and other measures. Right. And so you had the conference committee meet uh, yesterday afternoon and sign the report. They detailed a lot of the changes that they met, and the Senate actually passed the budget last night. So it's through one chamber, heads to the other, and if, if you look at the priorities You know, many people say that a state's budget is a statement of priorities. You know, there's always things like roads and bridges and other government agencies that have to be funded. But what is added or subtracted is a signal of what's important to the legislators based on uh, the money available and what their constituents say. And so for this budget, uh, racked by the coronavirus and you know, with looming cuts on the horizon to be able to say, we've come to an agreement, there's no furloughs, we're doing all of these things. You know, this is purely a budget that, uh, as Senate Appropriations Chair Blake Hillary said, you know, shows that Georgia and Georgians are resilient and it's more about what is preserved instead of squabbles over this agency here, this agency there. Tia, I know you've been following uh, the Georgia legislature from the distance of Washington and have filed some reporting uh, on it. One of the things that is still a little bit up in the air on this final day are some tax measures. Um, For instance, the state Senate is interested in seeing across-the-board reductions of 10% in all tax credit programs. The most prominent of those, of course, is the Georgia Film Tax Credit, uh, which is now— we talked about it on the show yesterday. Chuck uh, Huffstetler, who's the head of the Senate Finance Committee, is interested in finding out whether we really are getting our money's worth out of the huge tax credits we give to the film industry. But uh, the point is, there are some of those in there who would like to see it reduced across the board. That's not likely to get very far. Uh, uh, today, the Speaker of the House has already said, Ralston has said, any effort on taxes is a, uh, to, to do something with taxes is a job killer. So uh, we're going to see talk about taxes, tobacco tax, vaping tax, not likely to get very far uh, to you. Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, taxes are always a touchy subject with Republicans and they have kind of put themselves in a corner because for years and years and years, they've been so, you know, pro-cutting taxes. Um, they, they, as you mentioned, um, put it in the frame of, you know, to help businesses, you need to keep taxes low. And so that does tie their hands in a time like this where revenue 
is declining and they're looking for ways to tighten their belt, but they don't want to look like hypocrites and they also don't want to, you know, upset some of those same business and industry groups that they've been cultivating all these years. So, you know, with Republicans in control of the General Assembly and so many differing factions, you know, because the entertainment industry is very powerful, but so is the tobacco industry. And then so is, you know, you start talking, we haven't talked about revenue yet, but, you know, there are other places that are lobbying for new revenue streams that are just as controversial as cutting taxes. And I just think because Republicans have stated it, not just in like, not just in a kind of legislation framework, but also in like a morally, we don't raise taxes. That's not something we do. It kind of ties their hands in a time like this. Stephen, the effort to uh, raise the tobacco tax uh, uh, significantly, which could generate an enormous amount of income, is apparently headed nowhere. But does it look now like a tax on vaping products will, in fact, pass in both bodies? Right. So the House voted to pass a 7% tax on vaping products. It doesn't touch tobacco, but it would also raise the age to buy tobacco and vaping products from 18 to 21 and so, you know, there's also some fees for licensing fees for uh, people that sell vaping products and stuff. The estimate is that it would raise about 10 to $15 million in the next fiscal year, which is a drop in the bucket when you talk about $26 billion state budget. But it is uh, 10 to $15 million more than Georgia was counting on. So, you know, uh, it would have been a larger amount raised if the cigarette tax had been raised. Um, But, you know, like Tia said, there's not really a legislative or uh, uh, mindset appetite to make those kinds of changes, especially in an election year. So, Adam, before we talk about some of the measures that still could, in fact, uh, uh, pop up today that might be significant in one way or another, uh, we said at the top of the show that uh, this session will always be remembered for the session where the legislature finally, uh, 16 years after the state Supreme Court ruled the the previous Georgia hate crimes law to be unconstitutional, and after many, many efforts over those 16 years to pass a new hate crimes bill, uh, they finally did it this year. And Adam is a sign of how uh, significant this measure is. Uh, Tom Faust just sent me a note uh, that uh, Governor Kemp is going to sign that bill into law at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, so you know, to take it up that quickly, to move that quickly, shows that even the governor recognizes the impact of that bill, especially in the times we're living in right now. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there, and I hate to, to start out on kind of a, a down note, but I do really find it interesting that we had to have some of the things that we've had happen in the last couple of months to actually get that bill to move. I mean, that bill came out of the House last March. It sat in the Senate without a hearing. Uh, it pro- I, 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 I'm not afraid to say that if, if what had happened with Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and some of these others hadn't happened, it would still just be sitting in that committee without a hearing. And that's really that's really sad and, and really remarkable. Uh, I do know from a Savannah perspective, a local perspective, it's a it's a big win for our folks. Lester Jackson, the senator from here, had proposed that legislation years ago and had been pushing for it. The House bill that came over was co-sponsored by Ron Stevens, representative who is our senior delegate. Uh, he's the chairman of our local delegation and was really pushing for that. So, from a local standpoint, we're we're pretty excited to see that go through. But again, it's it's really it's. It's heartening that it's going through and that it's there and that when they actually started talking to some district attorneys broadly, the, the district attorneys supported the whole idea of having a hate crimes law. But it's just it's it's saddened at the same time that it's taken so long and and but and been such a political uh, football. And it's uh, gotten a lot of national attention. Uh, Tia, I'm going to play a soundbite and then ask you to comment on this. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan was on All Things Considered yesterday, and uh, he was there specifically to talk about this historic breakthrough. Let's listen to what he said. And I'm proud to uh, now no longer have to be referred to as a state that does not have a hate crimes bill. 
uh, on the books. It was one of the uh, best examples of bipartisanship and teamwork I've ever been involved in. You say you're proud of the bill, but to the question of why now, earlier this year, you did not take a stance on the hate crimes bill yourself. What made you decide to champion it at this moment? Yeah, certainly there's a sense of urgency. Uh, The absolute tragedies that have played out uh, all across the country, uh, they've been brought into our living rooms, including mine, sitting on a couch with my three kids, trying to explain to them what was happening and what were the remedies. Um, It's so interesting. Uh, Oh, thank you. Sorry, I didn't mean to um, talk over you, but I just, um, you know, to Adam's point, you know, and you don't even have to be cynical about it, but it's just an interesting study of what it took for America, and we're mainly talking about white people, to wake up. You know what I mean? And so we have a real example of, in, in, in fairly short order, where this legislation went from dead in the water to today becoming law because white people woke up and it took video of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and the, you know, in these protests to really say, you know what, we should have a law on the books. And so the question is, you know, in Georgia, there has been a change and it's widely applauded. The question is, what else will this wake up produce? And that's the question because, you know, hate crimes is a pretty low-hanging fruit when you think about it. You know, there's not a lot of people walking around saying, no, there shouldn't be hate crimes laws, you know. But there are other things that are, that are, that are it's going to take a lot more political will. You know, I'm glad that the All Things Considered host pushed Lieutenant Governor Duncan because he is the president of the Senate. He could have been out front on hate crimes much earlier, and he wasn't. The question is now there's much more difficult conversations that Democrats and black legislators are trying to have, and the question is will they happen and will something come out of it? And, and Tia, to your point about, um, you know, taking action and things like that, the lieutenant governor actually proposed his own version of a hate crimes law more than a year after the bipartisan House passed it. Uh, he got pushback because he didn't include the Georgia NAACP or other black groups. And the, you know, the Senate shut down the lieutenant governor's version of the bill about 24 hours after he filed it to advance with the House passed measure. And so, you know, he was on national radio and deservedly getting some scrutiny for championing a measure that he didn't even support months ago, that he didn't support passing his own or trying to push his own version through uh, in these final days of the legislative session. So I think to your point, there is going to be a reckoning, a legislative reckoning with people at the ballot box in November, taking stock of how the representatives and senators voted on this measure and what they're doing to promote Uh, bills and legislation that tackle these issues that have taken people to the streets for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I think this hate crimes law being signed today is a bit of a signpost to see how Georgia could be changing and responding to the the needs and the, the demands and the outcry from its citizens. Adam, a couple points about that that I want to throw your uh, direction. Uh, number one, uh, it is obviously true that the uh, uh, that our intense focus right now on the problems of racism in policing, uh, the general state of racial relations between African Americans, blacks, and whites in this country, uh, was an accelerant in getting this bill through. It's always important, though, to remember that this bill is historic in another way as well. This bill, we've talked about this on the show before is the first time the Georgia General Assembly has ever acknowledged LGBTQs, the community, in a legal, in le- given them legal standing in the state of Georgia. And it was that, more than anything else, which blocked the passage of the bill for so many years. So there's a victory there for uh, the LGBTQ 
community uh, as well, Adam. Uh, the other point I'll make, and then you kick it up, is that Democrats aren't through. They'll come back to the legislature next session with a series of additional reforms that they want to see in terms of policing and how it impacts primarily the black community. Adam? Yes, the the, the first thing you mentioned, that the, the, the acknowledgement of the protections for the for the gay community, I think a lot of that, it was indicated to me that that was, from talking to different lawmakers, that was the major stumbling block with the, with the, on the GOP side and why it was sitting in, Senate, in the Senate and not getting a hearing. I think that the Supreme Court's decision last week uh, regarding the um, uh, protections in the workplace probably helped kind of soften that. But yes, going with what was going on in the world right now, that bill was going to move, and they were not going to make an issue of that at this late date, uh, just optics and everything else would, would not be, would not be good. Um, and I've completely forgot the second part of this question. Sorry about that. That's quite all right. Um, we're going to see Stephen next session. Democrats are going to come back with an additional package of reforms, uh, law enforcement reforms and that they're going to want to pass to, uh, even further what we, you, you and Tia both talked about, uh, the relationship between police and, and again, uh, largely the black community. Yeah, they launched, uh, I believe it was 12 different bills that tackled uh, policing and criminal justice reform, including things, you know, addressing chokeholds, which we've seen, uh, Georgia's stand your ground law, which and citizens arrest law and other measures that um, uh, could be taken up in a substantive measure, depending on how the political winds shift with the November election if Democrats are able to make more ground in the House uh, and, you know, depending on how things go with uh, the White House and the Senate and other things like that. And so this is just the beginning of a wave, and we'll just have to see how things change. All right, we're going to get to our first break of the show. Uh, when we come back, let's talk just about a couple of the bills that are still hanging uh, in the fire that could actually pass before the session ends tonight. We'll do that and more. Uh, this is Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. If you're listening to us uh, live the 9 o'clock edition of Political Rewind. I uh, want to make sure you know that uh, GPB is going to stream the governor's signing of the hate bills, uh, the hate crimes bill, uh, at 2 p.m. this afternoon. If you're listening to what we love to call the encore presentation of Political Rewind at 2 o'clock, he's doing it right now, uh, and you can switch over uh, to our uh, digital platforms. Uh, but don't stay away too long. We want you to continue listening to our show. A uh, couple of quick items that we want to get to that are still outstanding at the legislature. Probably the most significant of them, Adam, is that there's still a movement down there to see if some, if a referendum, if momentum can come together to pass a measure that would put gambling on the ballot, would change the Georgia Constitution to allow for Georgians to gamble, whether it's paramutual wagering, sports uh, uh, betting, casino betting. Uh, that is still, and it's your Ron Stevens, another Savannah legislator, you mentioned him earlier, uh, who's uh, um, one of the people promoting this, I think, isn't he? Yes, he's had this bone in his in his teeth for a long, long time and has been pushing for this. Uh, I'd have to go back and look the exact date, but it's been close to a decade and of course, he has been a big proponent of destination resorts, which is a nice way of saying a, a casino, and the whole idea that the state could, uh, at some point, have four or five casinos around the state. Of course, one would be would be located here in Savannah, where 95 and 16, and a lot of travel comes through here, and it, it would make sense uh, from a standpoint to be here. And then, of course, I think along Valdosta was was floated, and then outside of Atlanta. And he's pushing this and uh, he wants it to go to the voters. And the interesting part of this is, is at least the last version that I saw that he had is this was an up and down voting on gambling as a whole. And that includes the lottery. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, we're either going to go full bore 
on on gambling approve all kinds of gambling, whether it's horse racing, whether it's the Georgia Lottery, whether it's sports betting uh, or casino gambling, or the voters are going to vote it down completely, and we're not going to have any kind of gambling. And that's an interesting that's an interesting approach on it. I did talk to him earlier in the week, and he was uh, relatively hopeful that they could advance the whole idea of getting that referendum uh, approved or allowed to be on the ballot. I know that it needed two-thirds vote in both chambers. I know – I'm pretty sure that it has the two-thirds in the House. I don't think the support is quite there in the Senate. And the other part of this, of course, was the sports betting was talked about earlier in the week as being a revenue source if they could go ahead and tax it now. And when we say sports betting, in this instance, we're talking about sports betting that happens over apps, something that is already legal in the U.S. and is happening in Georgia, but is just not being taxed. And there was there's some legal wrangling on the legality of, of being able to tax that or not when gambling is technically illegal in Georgia. But there were certain people in the legislature that thought they could go ahead and get that through, and that wouldn't require a referendum. And that's something that I'm going to keep an ear open for the rest of this day to see what happens in terms of both the referendum and in terms of can we tax sports betting. And I think Stephen might be able to speak to the, to the second part of that with the sports betting and, and, and getting that bill through. Yeah, so the, the last day of the legislative session is known for all sorts of shenanigans, bills being attached to other bills, uh, bills being passed in one chamber, stripped out completely for another, and casino gambling, appropriately enough, seems like one of those things that could you would place your bets on something popping up today in some form. Uh, you know, there are so many different uh, forces at play here with lobbyists and uh, different industry people and people trying to raise revenue. And you have all of these different alliances that could come together to thread that legislative needle to get the required number of votes in both the House and the Senate. Um, the Senate may be a little bit trickier, like Adam said, uh, the House much more likely, but uh, some of it depends on how the budget goes. Some of it depends on negotiations on the tax cut bills and other things. And so I wouldn't rule it out until you hear those final gavel sounds ringing through the Capitol, but it doesn't appear that it's a guarantee. Let's be clear. The legislature, and I think you've already said this, both Adam and Stephen have, have made it clear, but let me just repeat it. They are not voting on the, uh, the legislature does not have the power to legalize various forms of gambling themselves. They have to send it to the voters uh, because it requires a constitutional amendment. So it would mean that all of us would have a chance to vote on whether we want to legalize gambling uh, in the fall. Adam, did you want to make a point about that? Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting that this has really gotten a lot of traction, and it's being tied to the fact of, oh, well, we're short on revenue. Listen, if this referendum goes if, – if we're going to legalize gambling, the referendum doesn't come till the fall, and that's the state referendum. So if that gets the thumbs up from the state, then it has to be voted on again by the, by the local residents. So that requires enough or another referendum that goes into next year. And then if you're talking about casinos and horse racing tracks, these things don't pop up overnight. So the whole idea that, that this is being pushed because, oh, well, we got to plug these revenue shortfalls in the short term, that's uh, – <laughs> For lack of a better word, that's that's bogus. That's not where this money's going to come. This money's not going to come in in time to plug those holes. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons people uh, think sports betting, which you can get up and running on an app in a matter of uh, uh, literally hours if you really had to. I mean, but but can be done quite quickly. Tia, I want to turn to another issue that is still pending under the Gold Dome today, um, and it and I want to come to you on it because it also relates to the larger. Uh, 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 environment we're seeing in Washington right now uh, in terms of President Trump and Republic, some Republicans on the Hill casting doubts, casting suspicions on the states that are trying to expand absentee balloting. Uh, the president, of course, has repeatedly uh, said that uh, that absentee balloting is fraught with, with fraud. Uh, and now... The legislature, we're not sure where it's going to go today, I don't think. But now the Government Affairs Committee in the Government Operations Committee in the House 
wants to pass a measure that would forbid the Secretary of State of Georgia from automatically sending out to all registered voters requests for absentee ballots. Not the ballots themselves, just send them the form so they can apply uh, for them. Interesting to you. Yeah, I find that interesting, and my gut tells me that's one of those proposals that they try very hard not to let it get to the floor because it's the type of proposal that Republicans would rather not have to vote on, you know, because if they vote in favor of this proposal to not mail absentee ballot requests, it's implied criticism of the current Secretary of State, um, Raffensperger, but it's also, you know, means that you believe that president, you believe what President Trump has been saying, which is that, you know, voting by mail is possibly paving the way for fraud. And that flies in the face of what Republicans have been saying for years and years and years. So you don't want to go there. But they also know that they're, you know, because President Trump has been pushing this narrative, it gets legs with their base and with Republican voters who um, are listening to President Trump and Fox News and, and other conservative outlets that are pushing this narrative. And so it puts them in a tight spot because they don't want to feed into the notion that they're they're allowing Democrats to rig the election. It just puts, I think it puts them in a really bad spot if this bill comes for a vote. Stephen, the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, has said on a number of occasions that he shares misgivings about absentee balloting. He thinks there can be fraud. He said that on our show uh, the last time he was here. Do we have any sense yet of whether the Rules Committee is actually going to uh, put this measure on the, on the uh, uh, agenda, uh, the calendar to vote for a vote in the House uh, today? So the House Governmental Affairs Committee passed it out, and it was sent to Rules. And rules sent it back to the Governmental Affairs Committee. And that committee has not yet met. They could meet today. Anything could happen on this final day. But one way to read this bill is a rebuke of the Secretary of State's decision to mail out absentee applications to 7 million people for the June 9th primary. Another evidentiary point for that is that the original purpose of that bill was to cut down on long lines and cut down on problems at the polls by making counties add more voting machines or staff or polling places if lines were longer than an hour on November election days. So if you take those two pieces of information together, the bill and the proposal to ban counties and states from sending out the absentee applications was merely just kind of a a check against the Secretary of State and kind of warning him that don't do this again or there will be consequences without actually taking that legislative step to make a lot of people angry and risk energizing Democrats. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, Adam, you know, personalities always play a role in uh, when it comes to negotiations at, at the Capitol. And I think the other thing that we can't avoid at least mentioning as a, a little uh, aspect of this, is there's not a whole lot. Brad Raffensperger is not one of them. By that, I mean legislators. He's been a kind of an outsider. Uh, they've never grown really comfortable with him. And uh, so I think there, there's a little bit of mistrust uh, of, of the Secretary of State's office uh, among legislators. Yeah, sure. I think there is that. And, and certainly the way this election went did not... <laughs> Did not uh, win him any any points with legislators, and I think what you're seeing there, to a certain extent, is just a response to what they're hearing by the con- to the constituents. But here's the thing with that, and I think we have to put it in a pragmatic context, right? Is I'm going to take Chatham County, right where I live, and the fact that there were more absentee ballots cast than there were people going to the polls. There were 30,000 absentee ballots cast for the primary. Those 30,000 absentee ballots cast resulted in Chatham County taking more than a week to deliver results, more than a week. Now, you look at the November election, you look at the, the everybody that went to the polls in June, 
or a good portion of them are going to go ahead and request absentee ballots because it was such a disaster. It was it was so hard to get the vote done. And then you have the whole idea that the coronavirus is still going to be hanging out there, we assume. People are still going to be somewhat res- resistant to going to the polls. And you have a election that I, I, everybody else may disagree, but I think it's going to be a historic, historic turnout. So what should happen here is that Raffensperger probably shouldn't send out absentee ballot request forms. He should send out absentee ballots to everybody. And the, all this political consideration and everything else needs to go away. Oh, but in doing that, <laughs> in doing that, they have to realize that it is going to delay the vote count, that we're going to have a long, long uh, lag on this vote count. So when you think about it from the pragmatic terms and less about the partisan terms, I think that changes the conversation. Oh, T, I want to get you in here. But first, Adam, you are now playing into the hand saying we should send out actual ballots of all those who are really suspicious of whether there is fraud built into absentee balloting. But enough of that for now. Tia, go ahead. I just, I mean, to Adam's point, not that, um, you know, I don't think sending absentee ballots automatically is going to happen in Georgia anytime soon. But I do think you know, there is a little bit of deflection of the real problem. Yes, there were problems on Election Day. We all know it. Long lines, um, you know, not enough poll workers, not enough precincts it looked like on Election Day in some areas. So it's interesting that for some people you solve that by making it harder to vote by mail, by not, you know, facilitating voting by mail. And, you know, Democrats in in some of these voter uh, groups will say, no, the answer is doing better with this process, not limiting voting by mail, not tying the hands of the secretary secretary of state for trying to expand voter participation. That's not how you you don't reduce lines at the polls by, you know, making it harder for voters to vote in other ways like that seems a little bit counterproductive, but it shows that, you know, again, those deeper, um, more complicated issues, there's not that silver bullet, and that's going to take more work in, 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 in that bridging some of those partisan divides when it comes to voting. Adam, I'm going to give you the last word on this bit. we got to get to a break, so uh, you have just a few seconds. Yes, and... I, all I can say is that given the struggles at the polls and on June the 9th, and here we had polls that didn't even have provisional ballots for people who were tired of waiting, uh, the absentee ballots, mail-in ballots are the way to go. Uh, we can talk all day about fraud, but uh, I think the studies will show that, that the states, there's five states that do with mail-in balloting, and they do not have those issues. So why would we be any different? Stephen, I do want to mention one other quick thing and go to you on this. Uh, have we pretty well, uh, uh, pick one other issue that you're going to be watching. Is, have we covered pretty well what we're going to be looking at in this final day? Is there something else you want to mention before we take our break? Yeah, the last thing I'll mention about that is one thing uh, that isn't necessarily a big issue that people think about in Atlanta is a bill that deals with nuisance farming. Uh, it's a concept that uh, would deal with protections of people who come and move in next to farming operations, either small ones or big ones, and their, their rights to sue about the noise and the smell and other things like that. It's a pretty controversial measure that has had a lot of changes. And so that could come up today and spark a lot of debate that people might not necessarily think about. All right. We'll watch that. I thought you were going to say we're going to see final passage of the bill that allows liquor stores to to make home deliveries of beer and spirits. Now, there's an important piece of legislation. (laughs) All right. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell, GPB radio political reporter Stephen Fowler, and Savannah Morning News editorial page editor Adam Van Brimmer with me on uh, the show this morning. Tia, last night the House passed the police reform bill. They did manage to win over, I think, three Republicans uh, uh, or two or three uh, to support the measure. Uh, What is it? 
what does it do in bare bones, and uh, what chance does it have of getting anywhere beyond the house? Well, in its current form, it has no chance of getting beyond the House because both Republicans in the Senate who control that chamber and President Donald Trump's administration, mainly the main part of the House bill that's controversial is that it limits qualified immunity, which is that um, it qualified immunity is something that government workers in all types of situations, it shields them from being sued or arrested for, quote unquote, doing their job, even if you think there was a problem in how they did their job. So, of course, when qualified immunity is applied to police officers, that's how many of them avoid, you know, criminal charges or if a victim's family or the victim themselves want to sue a police officer in criminal, in civil court for damages, often qualified immunity prevents that from happening because the officers can say, hey, even if I wasn't doing a great job, I was doing what my job requires me to do. And so the Democrats bill would limit that, which would allow police officers to be sued or arrested more easily. And that's pretty much a non-starter right now with Republicans. So that's really the crux of the impasse between Democrats and Republicans. The House which is controlled by Democrats, has it in their bill. The Senate, controlled by Republicans, does not. And, uh, Tia, I haven't been able to see, I haven't found the, the tally on this vote, but I'm assuming that, in, that the Georgia delegation went along party lines for or against, right? Yes. There were three Republicans who voted with Democrats to pass the policing bill. Um, none of them were from Georgia. It's notable that the only black Republican in Congress the only black Republican in the House did vote with Democrats on the policing bill. Um, but again, in Georgia, it's strictly that that partisan divide is in play. All of the Republicans have opposed the bill. You know, uh, Adam, uh, I, I assume it was uh, Tia who wrote the lead to the jolt in the AJC today. Uh, the first item is about the passage of the bill. But here, Adam, is what... Uh, that lead says members of Congress from both political parties say protests that swept across the nation have policing and police brutality at the top of their agenda. They want to do something to reduce the number of people, especially black people who are killed by law enforcement. Still lawmakers find themselves at the same place they have in so many other issues an impasse largely driven by partisanship. Okay. So Adam, this reminds us of what we see in the aftermath of horrendous mass shootings. Um, at schools, uh, in communities, uh, it, and and everybody uh, says we got to do something, and then we run up against the partisan gridlock of Washington, and this appears to be headed in that same direction if somebody doesn't blink. Yeah, and the other the other piece of this is is policing is a lot like real estate, right? It's it's local, 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 location, location, location. And in, in certain localities, they're going to determine uh, the importance of the police, and they're going to determine what needs to be done differently. And and quite frankly, that's probably the way it should be. Um, it, you know, I was I've, I've watched this whole thing with interest, and I remember about four years ago here in Savannah when we were having just a terrible state of crime. And there was such an uproar over that the, the, the police need to – we need to give more money to the police. We need to um, expand the way we're doing our policing. We need to do community policing. A lot of the things that are being talked about in terms of the reforms can be done at the local level, and it's probably going to be a lot more effective at the local level. But then the whole thing is, okay, well, if, if you don't have somebody above them that can kind of kind of hold their feet to the fire, then then that's a problem too. But as this goes forward and, and and at the federal level, I don't I don't have any real idea. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this as, as to what could actually be imposed and what could be effective as it trickles down to the local level, because that's where all the police that's where all the policing for the most part gets done. Yeah. So you the the point that Congress and this is pretty universal, is that because so much of policing is controlled at the local level. There's wide inconsistencies. For example, we're seeing now that as a result of protests, some police departments are banning chokeholds. Others aren't. 
some police departments are, you know, you talked about community policing, which is it, it's a way of approaching policing. Broken windows, which is every little small thing you arrest because you don't want it to get out of hand. That's another way of approaching policing. So there, it's just so piecemeal. And you can literally cross from one highway, cross to the other side of the highway, and you're in a different jurisdiction with different rules. And that applies to a lot of things when it comes to you know law enforcement and policing. But what Congress is saying is let's create some national benchmarks, some, you know, some things that we would like to see consistently applied across the nation. But again, it, it, the disagreement now is where does that stop? For example, the Senate bill would encourage limitations on the use of chokeholds. So it wouldn't say you can't do it, but it would say, hey, let's create some clear standards as to when chokeholds can and cannot be applied, whereas the House is more looking at banning chokeholds. And so that's where, you know, that little bit of difference is is also where I think there is room for negotiation. But again, the overall point is, should there be some consistencies nationwide that people know when they're confronted by a police officer, no matter where they are, certain rules will apply? All right, Stephen, let's put this in a political context. Um, all the Republicans in the Georgia delegation voted against this measure. All the Democrats voted in favor of it. We've got brand new polling from Fox News uh, overnight that says the Georgia in the presidential race is pretty much in play. Biden and Trump are both within the margin of error in terms of winning Georgia at this moment. So in a political context and with the vast majority of Americans, we don't have any actual polling on this in Georgia yet, but I don't think, but the vast majority of Americans say they support the protests against police violence that have been uh, going on uh, around the country. What are the political implications here for the fall in the presidential race, um, even in some congressional, the 6th congressional district, the 7th congressional district, which will be in play? It'll have an impact. Right. So you do have two very closely contested congressional races, the 6th and the 7th, uh, in Atlanta suburbs. Uh, in the 7th district, the focus has been a little bit more on health care and not necessarily on policing reform and other issues like that. And so uh, you know, it will be interesting to see how each of those candidates kind of react and respond and incorporate that into their message. Um, but you do have you know, Lucy McBath, the congresswoman from Georgia's 6th Congressional District, who has made, you know, kind of criminal justice issues and uh, gun rights and other things a central tenet of her campaign and her platform. So that will certainly be prominent in that race. But you, you know, you also have to look a little bit to the presidential race to see Joe Biden and whoever his vice presidential nominee will be to see how that energizes and plays. You've got John Ossoff, who's already taken a stance and taken action on uh, kind of building up his platform dealing with these issues. And in the wide open jungle primary where Senator Kelly Leffler's race, you've got Reverend Raphael Warnock kind of tailor made to step into this void and talk about social change and things like that. So it's definitely going to be a big issue. Whether the candidates say it or not, I think Georgians will look to them when they cast their ballot. All right, we're going to, it's going to be a fascinating uh, issue to watch play out in the months ahead. Adam, we've only got a couple minutes left, but I really do want to turn to your mayor, Van Johnson. We know that cases of uh, COVID-19 are on the increase in Georgia. We have not seen the spikes that other states like Florida, uh, Texas, uh, and others, North Carolina, have seen after opening up for business. We've dodged a bullet to some extent, nevertheless, our numbers are on the rise. I think we've seen like a 50% increase in uh, recent weeks. And now your mayor is saying he wants to make masks mandatory in Savannah. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, Mayor Johnson has, has used his, his bully pulpit quite effectively since this whole thing started. And, and when he's seen people uh, congregating and gathering, he's, he's talked about, okay, well, if this continues, we're going to close down the parks. And when uh, when, I, when I say parks, I mean municipal parks, city parks. And then 
when the businesses reopened, he pushed a, a initiative that basically was called Savannah Safe that had a listing and, and listed all of these businesses to say, okay, when you come into my store, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. So he's been on the forefront of this, and he's talked about face masks and making them mandatory for quite a while. But on Monday, he held a emergency emergency city council meeting specifically on this issue. And what he did was – and he did it officially at the meeting, but he had done this in the past – was he charged the city attorney with researching whether he could issue an emergency directive to require face coverings in public and uh, how he could do that. And he, you know, there was a lot of he's talked to some other municipal leaders around the state, and they're all, uh, you know, they, none of them have challenged, uh, none of them have challenged Governor Kemp's uh, directive, and that's what Johnson will be doing. When you look around the country, there's been other places that have tried this. I know North Carolina has mandated it, and you've had local authorities basically say they don't think it's constitutional, and on top of that, they don't think it's enforceable. Where we go from here with Mayor Johnson will be interesting. Like I said, this was Monday. They had another city council meeting last night. The 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 issue did not come up. So uh, how much traction it's going to get, it's very – we're going to find out. Yeah, I just want to quickly say that, you know, there is a much different perspective. I live up here in the D.C. area. It's controlled by Democrats much more, um, you know – the face mask rules have been in place since the beginning. You know, we were shut down completely. And once they allowed certain stores to reopen, there was always the requirement here that you had to wear a face mask. And um, so I, I say that not to try to change anyone's mind, but other than to say I live at a place where face masks are required and it's not that bad, guys. <laughs> okay. And I'm with you, Tia. Please wear your mask out there, folks. Stephen, before we uh, leave, and we're really short on time, I realize there was an important item in the budget that we didn't cover, and that is that while schools in Georgia are going to take a pretty significant cut, the fact of the matter is it's not going to be as bad as originally expected. Apparently, uh, uh, teacher furloughs are off the table. Uh, bus transportation is not going to lose funding. The schools are going to come out of this a little better than we anticipated. And I think we ought to make that point quickly before we uh, finish the show today. Right. $950 million has been cut from the state's K-12 funding on paper, but funding for sparsity grants, equalization grants, other things like that are kept intact. And the CARES Act, there's almost half a billion dollars that's going straight to those local school systems so what you see on paper won't be the full effect these school systems will feel. Thank you very much, because I really think that was an important point to get across before we finish. Tia Mitchell, Adam Van Brimmer, Stephen Fowler, uh, what a pleasure to have you all on the show today. We're out of time, finishing another week on Political Rewind Monday, an important show. President of the Atlanta History Center, Sheffield Hale, uh, DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman, and Mary Margaret Oliver will be here. We're going to talk about the newest efforts to take down monuments to the Confederacy and to slave owners. It has gotten hotter than ever before. That's Monday. In the meantime, I hope you all have a good weekend. Please take care and stay healthy. <laughs>